appreciate uh, the worship this morning. Really enjoyed it. If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open them with me, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're finishing 1 Samuel. Uh, Linda told me the date of when we started 1 Samuel. She's like, I'm sure you know this. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. I started it so long ago. I didn't... It's April something, right, Linda? April 25, we started 1 Samuel, and we've just kind of taken a chapter a week, and here we are, uh, finishing 1 Samuel, so I'm um, glad you've taken the journey with us. When we were singing, I was looking at the songs, well, the phrase that kind of I identified with, maybe you'll identify with, was, come all you weary. Anybody else here weary? Goodness sakes. You know, like you kind of go through life and you just kind of like, man. And I think maybe that's why so many of us are really looking forward to Thanksgiving break. Like it can, almost can't come soon enough, can it? Or Christmas. We're looking forward to Christmas because then, at least for a little while, maybe the world will stop fighting. Maybe. And so we really look forward to Thanksgiving, we look forward to Christmas, and maybe we can have a break from the fighting and the chaos and the strife. I want to talk to you about the fighting and the chaos and the strife, though, and what, what we believe about God when we're in the middle of it, while we're getting through, getting through it. I, I just want to talk to you mostly about God this morning. As we, as we sit with ancient Israel, as, as they go through some really, really hard stuff, as they see their king die, what can they believe about God? And as you go through really hard stuff, and, and for them, for them, they saw their king dead, hanging on a wall, beheaded, naked. They saw their king, that was their future up there, Naked, hanging on a wall, shamed. And that was kind of their representative up there hanging on the wall. And as they're worried about their future, I don't know, is there anybody here that may be worried about their future? Could that be a thing? You know, as we go through life, it's sometimes it seems like when we watch the news, cycle after cycle after cycle, we can get overwhelmed with how much is wrong with the world. And for ancient Israel, this was a time when they could get really overwhelmed with how much was wrong with the world as, as the bad guys come in and take their cities and take their gardens and take their and they have to just run away and leave everything that generations of their families have worked for. Anybody here, like, just look at everything that's wrong with the world and go, I hope that doesn't win, but it kind of looks like it's winning. And, and, you know, in ancient Israel, we'll see here in just a little bit as we read this, we'll see the Philistines give their version of the Philistine gospel. They'll go out and they're going to share their good news with the world. And, and it might be like there's some people here that are not sure what they can believe anymore. 
So if you're sitting across from one of these people in ancient Israel, that their king has died, their cities are taken, they're hearing the Philistines pronounce their version of the good news, if you could sit across from them and talk with them, what would you tell them about God? What, what good news about God would you tell them? Let's think about that today as we jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 31. And let me pray before we read. Lord, I, I ask that you would stand in front of me, lie stand in front of them. And Lord, that you would talk over me while I talk to them. This is your word. These are your people. Show up and speak for our sake. And your glory. And the world's good. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 31 verse 1. Now the Philistines, so this is where the Philistines lived, out there on the Mediterranean coast, um, near the south in Israel. So you, the big circle there, the bigger circle is the Dead Sea. Uh, in the south, and the smaller circle is the Sea of Galilee. You can see that um, the Philistines had a spot over, over here, and then this was, the green would be Israel's territory. Uh, they go way into Israel's territory. They make this huge invasion. The Philistines were fighting against Israel, so they're all the way up near the Sea of Galilee now. You see how far north they've come and how far east they've come into Israel. We're fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines. Not a good day when you have to flee. And fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So Philistine, the Philistines have chariots, and so Israel retreats from the plains of Jezreel to the mountain because chariots would be less effective in the mountains. And so they're fighting in the mountains, and um, they still lose because they're just overwhelmed by the Philistines. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Your king and his sons, your future dies all in one day. At least that's how it looks. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword. Okay, so we're going to come back to this in just a, a little bit, but I want you to really, I want you to see it, and I want you to see, so I have, we're going to go one word at a time for a second. Because I really want this, you to remember this part, okay? So therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So if you take your own sword and you put it against a rock and you probably hold it like this, you fall face down, okay? So just hold on to that. We'll come back to that. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. you got to go slow in verse 6. So in my Bible, I have like vertical lines drawn between each phrase, like above each comma, because you got to go slow so you can feel it. 
Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. That's a bad day. For Israel, it looks for all the world like all is lost. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel who fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. So they see that Saul and his sons are dead, they see that the day is lost, and so they have to flee. And they leave their cities behind. I mean, imagine leaving a major city that you can think of behind. Imagine leaving, retreating and leaving Detroit behind. Hope they don't get Lansing type thing. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. You know, we used to live there, and now the Philistines do. And the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they, I have this in yellow, just like how Saul died, and that's on purpose, so you'll remember. So they cut off his head. Saul falls face forward, and then they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news. This is what I'm saying with the Philistine version of the gospel. To carry the good news to the house of their idols. Like, the assumption is that their idols will need to be told the good news. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth, you know, as a trophy to their God, that their God had conquered Yahweh, and that they won. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. You can see that that is just a little bit farther uh, west. East, sorry, just a little bit farther east um, than Mount Gilboa. Fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, you can see where that is on the map across the Jordan River, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Okay, why, why the men of Jabesh Gilead? Why did they come and take Saul's body? This is one of my questions as I was reading it. Was it just that they're more alpha than everybody else? Well, they're the ones, this, this is, is reminding us of Saul's finest hour. They're the ones that were in trouble when he was a king, when, he was anointed, when Saul was anointed king but hadn't really taken assertive control of the kingdom yet. When they hear that the people of Jabesh Gilead are surrounded and that their de- surrender is demanded, 
from the Ammonites, and they say, you're going to surrender, and um, when you surrender, we're going to gouge out all of your eyes, you know, your right eye. Everybody's going to lose their right eye so that you're shamed forever, so that forever you remember that you lost to us, so that forever you remember that you're a slave to us. This reminds Israel that Saul did have a finest hour, even if he dies this terrible death. So if you're sitting across, if you're sitting across from an Israelite and they live through this day where Saul dies and his three sons dies, where they surrender these cities, where the Philistines come in and they take these cities, if, you, if you're sitting across from an Israelite and, you, and they live through this, what do you say to them about God? I think I could sum up what I'd say to them about God in two words. I would tell them that God wins. Even though it looks like all is lost, God wins. So here's why I'm saying that. Saul had set himself up as an enemy of God because he was fighting God for control of his future. I don't know if you remember, but a, a while ago, God had said, you're done as king, and I'm going to raise up someone other than you, someone different than you. And so Saul had been fighting God for control of his future for a long, long time. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Saul dies falling. Remember how he fell? Remember how he went word by word? He falls face forward, and then they come and cut off his head. We should be expecting that. Well, because this is how the enemies of God die in 1 Samuel. This is how the enemies of God die in 1 Samuel. So we should be expecting this of Saul, because this is what happened to the first humongous enemy of God that we met in 1 Samuel. A giant of an enemy of God in 1 Samuel. The Philistine himself. So we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17, remember David puts his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. Now so think about this. You get David winding up the sling, he lets it go, the rock comes at him like a bullet, it hits him right in the forehead. Which way should he fall? He should really fall backwards. And the stone sank into his forehead because David had slung it so hard and he fell <laughs> on his face to the ground. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath. It's like it's in slow-mo. You know, the Bible will skip decades and just say, and then this happened. But here it is, like David ran, stands over him, you know, like Hero would, maybe steps over him. You know, I can see my sons trying to do that. You know, so look at this, like it's slow-mo. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, and, hey, that's just what happened to Saul, isn't it? This is what happens to the enemies of God in 1 Samuel. 
But this happened to Dagon before this. Dagon was the Philistine god. Remember, Israel had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking now we're going to force God's hand. They're thinking of God like someone they can control, and so they think that they can make God fight for them if they bring the Ark into, into the battle. And so God's like, you know what? You're not going to think of me like that. And so God lets them lose. God would rather go into exile than have his people think that they can control him. And so God goes into exile, and the ark ends up in Dagon's temple. And this is what we read about Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen. What are those next two words? Face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon. And put him back in his place. Here you go, Dagon. we got to help you out. Stand him back up. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Just like Saul had fallen face down. Just like Goliath had fallen face down. So in the beginning of the book, the Philistine god falls face down. And, and you, you know what else is coming. What has to happen and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Because this is what happens to the enemies of God in 1 Samuel. They lie prostrate in worship before Yahweh. You see this in the beginning of the book, in the middle of the book, and surprisingly at the end of the book as Israel's king has made himself an enemy of God. But we shouldn't be surprised because this is what Hannah had prayed in the very, very beginning of the book, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, as Hannah prays, thanking God for exalting her, for giving her a son that she never saw coming, she prays, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, because she's like setting the tone for the book of God's great reversal that he keeps, he keeps giving. He will guard the feet of those faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Here's the first thing I'd say to the Israelite who feels like all is lost. Because it looks like all is lost. Say, God wins. God wins even when it looks like all is lost. So surrender now. What you want to do is make sure you're on God's side, that you're surrendered to God. Bowing your knee is good, but Saul would bow his knee before God. Bend your heart is better. That's the thing that Saul wouldn't do. Bend your heart. Bow to him. Surrender to him. What, what surrender means is saying to God, I trust you with my future. I surrender my future to you. This is what Saul wouldn't do. You see this negatively with Saul. Like I, he would not surrender his future to God. It means staying surrendered to God in the present. And it means surrendering our past to God. Not 
not insisting on defining our own past. You're not trying to justify ourselves in the past. You're not trying, it, not trying to whatever we would do with our past, but simply surrendering it to God. The first thing would be the first consequence of knowing that God always wins is surrender. Okay, then surrender. Don't wait. Surrender now. Don't make yourself an enemy of God. Just surrender. Okay, and second, because not everybody, I mean, some people are fully surrendered, and I'm sure there were Israelites who were fully surrendered, but let's talk about the people that were, would be living in verse 7 and feel like all is lost because evil keeps on winning. Like, so verse 7, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled, and the city and the Philistines came and lived in them. If they're going, but evil is so overwhelming. It seems that, as the songwriter put it, the wrong seems oft so strong. Like that really rings true. You see that it seems like things keep going wrong, more and more wrong. What do they need to know? I would want them to know that they can take courage because God is truly king. Saul was never truly king. God is the true king. They need to know that God is king and God is working out his good purposes even in this mess. Even in the Philistine victories, God is working out his good purposes. Even when it seems like evil keeps on winning over and over and over again. Well, stop and think about it. God has protected David. God redeemed Saul's hatred of David, wanting to kill David, to get David far away from the situation so David wouldn't die in battle too. God rejected the Philistines remembering, or God redeemed the Philistine generals, remembering David, like who this is, so David wouldn't go into battle, and David wouldn't have to kill Israelites. God redeemed this whole situation. God got David way away from there, and God redeems the situation, so Saul dies, Saul's sons die, so that the throne is open, so that David can become king. God is firmly in charge. And the other thing that you'd want to say to the guy sitting across the table from you is, the Philistines? The Philistines killed the wrong king. David's coming for him next. And they're not going to like it. They're going to wish they killed David when they had the chance. Everything you've lost, you're going to get back when David becomes king. So take courage because God is firmly on the throne. Take courage because God is in charge and is working out his good purposes. This is true in your life too. As you, as you go through life and you see this go wrong and that go wrong and this go wrong and that go wrong. 
Here's what you can remember. That God is working all of it together for the good of those who love him. God's not up on the throne going, oh no, the Philistines just won again. Oh no, what am I going to do now? God's not worried about that. God has a good plan. And the darkest, worst losses, he is working together for good. You think of this, think of this, when Jesus' disciples all ran away because it really looked for all the world like all was lost. And, you know, you know how Saul was hung on the city walls? So, Jesus, King Jesus, was hung on a cross, naked, shamed, dying, tortured, and then dead, tortured to death. And it looked for all the world, for all the world, like all was lost and evil had won. But this is how Christ conquered sin and death. And so, Take, take courage, because the victory is the Lord's. And this is the gospel that we share, that Jesus conquered sin and death. That it, at, the worst, at the worst time for the disciples, when they saw their Christ, their King, up on the cross dying, that that is when he was winning, as he was bearing the sins of the world in your place and mine. That God redeemed that evil for good. And the Apostle Paul, he, he can write about this. And he can talk about how what Jesus did on the cross truly brought about victory over sin and death. And he writes about it like this. He says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to Christ who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have victory. So you have victory over sin and death. And if you have victory over sin and death, what else are you worried about? Well, I mean, I still worry about a lot of stuff. I find a way. I find a way. But I shouldn't. I should take great comfort in the idea that Jesus conquered sin and death. And if those two things are taken care of, nothing else really matters. It's this good news that we want to share. And, and really, we want to um, share as a church. This is, this is our mission as a church, to share the good news and as we share the good news, make disciples of Jesus Christ. And um, so let me say, before I talk about our year-end offering, which is an expression of this belief of sharing the gospel, let me just say that we can talk about these projects as a year-end offering because so many of you, so many of you 
that are here in this room and so many of you that are watching on the live stream give consistently week after week to you just give consistently and sacrificially and so the bills are paid and we can stay on mission and so when we come to something like this we're not desperately scrambling to make budget instead of desperately scrambling to make budget we're talking about missional life-giving projects we can do so thank you so much for being consistent and faithful in your weekly giving so here are some here's the Here's what we want to do to be on mission as a church. These are the needs we're hoping to meet. The first one is we'd like to raise $14,000 to help move FIBOT Seminary onto their new campus. Now, that's the Dannenbergs up there, uh, and they've been um, serving that seminary for years. And here they are, kind of at nearing the end of their season there, kind of think they have retirement maybe in their sights uh, now, a couple years off, but they want to help finish this seminary and leave it to the nationals to run. And so John actually made a video for us about this seminary. So if we can maybe lower the lights a little bit, at least up here, so you guys can see this video. will be three duplexes, which will eventually be student housing. Let's get a closer look. But I am with two of our administrators. This is Dr. Malipu and Pastor Vopamade. And I have a big question, your question. Dr. Malipu, if the Lord provides some money for us, what are we going to do with it? Possibility to, 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 to put the, the uh, electricity here and uh, the well. Yes, we need a, the first priority is to finish these three buildings. We have, this is the third building, and we're in the process of working on it right now and we've discovered some problems with the previous two buildings that need a little bit of fixing. Uh, there's some, some uh, cracks in the walls and things like that. We need to fix that. And so we want to finish these three buildings. We think we have enough money for that. But what we don't, or what we're not sure we have enough money to do, is to put in water. So we need a good well with eventually a water tower, and we need electricity. So we are going to be contacting the power company in town to see what they will charge to bring electricity onto our campus. All this with the goal of being done by September of next year so that we can begin classes on this campus. So that's our big need and that's our big, big prayer request. One of the other projects that we need to seriously think about whether we're going to be able to do that with your gift or not if we have enough, we need to fix this road. The rain has come down and made a muddy mess. I can't get here with my car. It's, the holes are too deep. So we need to fix the road and that will take some money for the uh, city to come in and fix it or we pay a private contractor to come in and fix it. 
So welcome to the Feebot campus, but you see some of the needs now. Feebot campus, pretty bare right now, but so many, many possibilities. There's our building straight ahead, and we come by a very bumpy, muddy road, and we come to the road that connects to the blacktop. About your uh, support for uh, Fibat, yes. thank you very much. God bless you because you think to help us to build this, uh, this campus. May God bless you. So we'd love to give the first $14,000 to help them finish uh, the work they need to do with water and electricity to move on to that campus. We'd also, the next $20,000 we'd like to raise, we'd like to have go towards materials to replace Big Creek Mission's roof. So that picture up there, maybe you see some people you recognize. Uh, th that is everybody that went on the missions trip except two of you. And I think Raylene and Kara are not in that picture, but I think everybody else that went on the missions trip is in that picture. And so... Um, they went down there and they could see throughout the building like water damage and there's parts of the building they weren't using because of the water damage. It all goes, really it's, it comes back to the roof. They need to replace the roof. And so we'd love to go down there and serve again this next year with our um, youth group. With, and, and so part of that is we, in order to help them stay on mission, we need to help them replace their roof. So we'd like to raise $20,000 materials to replace Big Creek Mission's roof. Then we would also, oh, there's another view of it, uh, of the building. That's from the outside. We would like to raise $40,000 to mobilize ministry with a 13 to 15 passenger van. So it will be 13 passengers if it, is, if it has a handicap accessibility, like a handicap lift. It would be 15 passengers if it does not have a handicap, if it's not handicap accessible. So here's the thing. We have two options because we may go one of two ways. So we may have two vans. We may keep the van that we have. Um, the, it's a great van. I was reminded again how nice a van it is this week. The thing that makes this van difficult is it requires a CDL with a passenger endorsement. There may be a whole bunch of you that have CDLs with passenger endorsements, but we don't know who you are. So it's been really hard for us to recruit drivers because you'd say, would you drive the church bus? Sure. Okay, all you have to do is get a CDL with a passenger endorsement. Oh, well, I might be busy next week. You know, like you can see how that's kind of a tough sell. So... Um, so it's a, great, it's a great people mover. It really is a nice vehicle. It's just hard to, re hard to recruit drivers for it. And so we may keep it, though, because it's such a nice vehicle and because it is handicap accessible. Or, depending on the market, uh, after we raise uh, the money, depending on the market, we may sell it and then put the money towards a 13-passenger van that would be handicap accessible. Either way, we're going to maintain handicap accessibility. We'll maintain it with two vehicles or we'll maintain it 
with one vehicle, but either way we'll maintain handicap accessibility. So if we sold the van, we would put the money in addition to the $40,000 that we raised. So we know we need to raise at least $40,000, but we're not sure if we're going to keep, it'll, like I say, it will depend on some market research on whether or not we keep the older people mover or we sell it. Okay, so that brings us to $74,000. Now the last couple years, we've received over $90,000 at year-end giving time, and so we've got to have a plan for the rest of the money that comes in. And for the rest of the money that comes in, we would love to give it to Big Creek Mission for uh, their discretion. Now, they said in order to fully buy all the materials that they need to replace their roof, they need $32,000 just, just for materials. So we think that, Lord willing, if, if we receive the gifts that we've received in the past couple years, we would be able to help them buy everything they need to replace their roof. And that would be a big answer to prayer for them. Amen. And it would really um, bring us joy as we get to go down there and serve again this year on June 12th through the 18th as we're planning to go back down there again um, this summer. That's the year-end offering. And uh, I hope that you consider partnering with us, but more than that, I hope you take courage and joy and assurance that Jesus has conquered sin and death and reigns victoriously and is working out his good plan. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word, and Lord, we thank you for the good work that you have accomplished through um, these year-end offerings in the past and that you are accomplishing through us now. And Lord, I pray that you'd um, help us Help us experience what we sing as we sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.